We all want happy, healthy families, and that quest for good health begins at birth. Sadly, many of our nation's infants have a much more difficult journey reaching their first birthday than other infants. African-American babies, for instance, are as much as two and a half times less likely to reach their first birthday than Caucasian babies. This disturbing disparity has given rise to a national forum, a forum wherein healthcare professionals, birth workers, policymakers, and family planning experts share information and ideas to combat the scourge of black infant mortality and maternal morbidity. Welcome to the Gap Podcast Series. Welcome to the Gap Podcast Series. Today, we are in for an incredible treat. We have with us in studio today, Dr. Kyra Brown, Assistant Professor of Public Health at the University of Texas, Arlington. And it is my honor to have you in studio today, Dr. Brown. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So I want to begin by just having you talk to us, talk to our audience about what is the discipline of public health at the university level? Why is it a discipline? What do you guys do? Tell us about the world that you live in, Dr. Brown. Sure. So uh, public health is a very broad field. So um, I think the distilled down version is that public health is about protecting uh, the population, um, prevention of uh, disease um, or illness in a population. And so that can look like a lot of different things. For me, it's maternal and child health as a subset of public health. Whereas, you know, you might see community health, uh, where maybe it's community-based health promotion, maybe teaching people how to manage their diabetes or teaching people how to eat healthy. And then on kind of um, another end might be environmental health, right? How do we protect the environment um, that people are living in? And then we have emergency preparedness where, you know, in the case of natural or uh, man-made disaster, how do we respond to those um, incidences in a fashion that reduces the most harm? So public health is very vast, um, but it's a discipline that's based on core principles of protecting the population's health um, and ensuring um, equity, equitable health outcomes across across all groups, um, particularly those who um, might be more marginalized populations. How did the discipline of, of public health kind of, kind of begin in America and grow to kind of the expansiveness to which you've just described? Because it, you know, I, I did not realize that, that it covered such a, a, a broad range of of topics from community to environmental to the various subsets how did how did this grow as a as a as a discipline as a part of uh, the American educational system yeah so um I have to preface this with saying that so by training I'm a psychologist and so a lot of my training has been within the health psychology kind of arena and then community psychology and so um, but remnants of that it has been public health right so what are the health implications of the work that we do in communities so um, just like psychology and social work, you know, public health, all of those disciplines have influenced each other. Um, so 
a lot of times it's hard to actually pinpoint where, you know, kind of this emergence of a discipline came because a lot of the same theories and kind of um, approaches kind of blend across some of the disciplines. Um, but I'd say, you know, one of the one of the things that we learn in, you know, in, in schooling is that public health, a lot of people think about a man by the name of Snow, uh, John Snow, um, and the there was a cholera outbreak in gosh I forget it's like the early 20th century um, in Europe and um, you know there's this mass cholera outbreak and we know that time in Europe things weren't always cleanly in terms of sanitation and so he came up with this approach to um, think about okay well what's actually causing this problem and so he's credited with actually thinking about oh well let's um, take this watering pump where people were getting their water from that was actually contaminated um, and that's how people were getting cholera and so he removed the water pump and they saw this decline in cholera and so that's one of the earlier kind of foundational um, you know stories that you hear about kind of this emergence of public health right but that's that's a very um, Eurocentric um, kind of origin story of public health, right? Um, we think about ancient civilizations and, and the practice of medicine and the practice of healing and, and kind of health prevention um, all across the world. So it's hard to pinpoint, you know, where did public health start, right? Um, where it emerged in a lot of different contexts based on whatever that particular um, populations or communities' needs were. So I know that's kind of a, probably a long explanation of No, that's, that's really, I mean, that's expansive. That's, uh, that's fascinating, actually. We're, you know, we're about, we're about origin stories here. You know, we like to, you know, we believe in the doctrine of first principles. You know, we want to know how something began. It's helpful to understand a thing if you can understand that thing's origin story. As you know, we're you know we're deep in the world of of black infant mortality, of dealing with it, of illuminating the the factors that bring it about, driving down um, the number, the amount of maternal morbidity, the amount of maternal deaths, and and one of the things that I, I want you to speak to, or just give me your thoughts about, is. Going back to the 1890 census, from the earliest data sets that we could uncover, there's been a consistent two-to-one gap in terms of the number of Caucasian babies who die before their first birthday and black babies that die before their first birthday. Now, of course, in 1890, you know, it was 200— for every 1,000 live births, but it was 400 for black babies. Yeah. So even though, you know, we push forward, you know, 7,500 years, the numbers have dropped. I mean, there's not, as you know, I mean, the numbers aren't 200 for every 1,000 live births, but the two-to-one gap remains, I mean, based upon how the data's parsed, about five, four-and-a-half for, every, for every 1,000 births for Caucasian infants, 10, 11, 12, depending on the county, for black infants, and as someone involved in public health, speak to 
how this consistent two-to-one health gap remains for over a hundred years. That seems statistically improbable. Mm -hmm. So I I wanted to speak to that because, um, and I know this is podcast and we can't see, but uh, I wanted to kind of add on to that for, I think, the sake of comparison too. So um, even looking back from, so Dr. Arthur James, who's at Ohio State University, he was originally uh, at Kalamazoo um, doing work with reducing infant mortality in Kalamazoo County. And um, I, I, I adapted this graph from one of his presentations, but I went and pulled the CDC data from 1980 to 2017 to look at that gap. And um, the way that he framed it and the way that we looked at that gap is that um, in 1980, uh, the non-Hispanic white infant mortality rate was about 10.9. Um, mind you, in 2017, it's about 11 or, you know, round that up to, round that down to 10.9. And so that that means that there's that 37-year gap um, between that 1980 and 2017, and that if we keep going at this rate, um, which I'll speak to kind of your question, is that it'll take until the year 2054 for black babies to experience the same opportunity to survive their first year of life as white babies did in 2017. And so, you know, to that gap, one of the things that Arthur James says is that, you know, the thought of, this is a direct quote from him, the thought of striving to improve the rate of survival for one group at a faster pace than for another group bothers many people. They complain that doing so would be immoral, unfair, unjust. Yet we've been doing this for decades and we've behaved as if this is normal. So that in context to, you know, we have our healthy people, healthy people 2020 goals that say, you know, the goal is, you know, six uh, infant deaths per, right? But we know that black babies' infant mortality rates are far beyond that, right? So we're setting this bar of success that doesn't really take into account the higher rates of of black infant mortality, right? So we're kind of perpetuating that idea of, you know, kind of the reverse of why can't we intensively focus on black babies, right? When you talk about racism, when you talk about, you know, focusing on black mothers and babies, people get really uncomfortable. Oh, well, we shouldn't, we need to focus on all babies, right? All moms. Um, but the way that we've been doing things, that's not addressing um, kind of these root causes. And so I'd say that um, the explanation for this is complex, right? There's a lot of different factors that drive this uh, persistent gap in uh, the infant mortality, or racial gap in the infant mortality. Um, and I'd say the most straightforward reason um, is due to inequities in economic stability, education, healthcare, environment that have been sh- shaped by structural racism. 
um, that's the root cause of those things and that those complex forces then create these undue stressors um, that then manifest in other ways like um, hypertension, like uh, poor access to healthy food, like, you know, living in food deserts. So all of these things kind of trickle down from this larger system of structural racism and implicit bias. Um, as well as even when you look at clinical, you know, the clinical causes of maternal death, um, which is heart disease um, and stroke and hemorrhage, or the clinical causes of birth defects with, or excuse me, the clinical causes of infant mortality, black infant mortality, uh, birth defects or the major contributor. But again, going back to the root cause, I mean, those are the clinical causes, but there's things that drive that, right? And we know things like obesity can contribute to birth out or to birth defects. Um, and so obesity is influenced by a lot of, you know, yes, some genetic kind of influences from family to family, but those things are also influenced by our environment and those social determinants of health that shape our health outcomes, our health trajectories, um, and ultimately the birth outcomes of women. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of that big picture of why these persistent gaps um, are still here. And it seems, I want to go back to something you said that, that troubled me, actually. And what you said that troubled me was when the problem is identified quantitatively and there is a, there's energy around shaping a discussion about it, there are those who would say, well, look, we just got to focus on all babies. We can't focus on black babies. But... But wait, but wait a minute. The, the the dominant quantitative narrative is that that's where the itch is. So why would we not scratch that itch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Racism. <laughs> mm. um, Wow. Um, Implicit bias. I mean, people, I think a lot of times you have maybe well-meaning people, um, and this can be people of any background, right? Um, But the thing about, you know, racism, the thing about white supremacy, um, you know, all of those things is that it's deeply rooted. And when we talk about biases, we're, we're not aware of those things always, and you really have to do the work to try to un uncover those um, kind of deeply rooted feelings or biases about those things. And I think, you know, going back to your question about what is public health, a major emphasis of public health is around equity and racial health equity. And it's like, well, how do we start addressing um, these significant disparities in 
maternal and infant health, it's by naming it, naming structural racism. And a lot of groups have started to do that and have been doing that for a while with specifically naming in our mission, we are here to dismantle structural racism. And this is what it looks like and we will hold ourselves accountable for this. Um, and it's being able to have that lens that can guide the way that we think, the way that we go about doing the work. Because if you're intentional about that, then you're a lot more likely or less likely to say things like, oh, well, let's focus on all babies or let's focus on all women, right? And you, you understand that inequity is about unjust um, and prevent or avoidable differences, right, in those outcomes. These are things that are modifiable. They don't just happen, right? So... We're about to go to break. You're listening to the Gap podcast series. Today's episode is featuring Dr. Kyra Brown from the University of Texas, Arlington, Department of Public Health. My name is Nakia Lawson, and I am so excited to announce a new segment on the Gap podcast series called Let's Doula This. As we talk more about infant mortality and maternal mortality in communities of color and around our globe, we want to focus on areas and ways in which doulas can help advance what's going on in maternal health. So join us as we continue to share in the Gap podcast series, Let's Doula This. Forces inimical to the lives of black children and black moms have been unleashed on our communities. Simply stated, we're in a mess. And what do we know about messes? The same level of thinking that gets you into a mess is neither deep enough or broad enough to get you out. A lot of the work has been done in what, what is the social context of pregnancy and African-American women. We face um, a health disparities crisis right here at, at home. Preterm birth truly is a public health priority. Were we able to prevent preterm births, not only would infant mortality improve, we would actually improve the health of the nation. And the, the infant mortality rates for African-American populations in those zip codes, it's, it, it's astoundingly high. Too many babies are born prematurely, and there are disturbing racial disparities we must address. Our team is embarking on a quest to determine why this prevailing gap in maternal and infant health care exists. To learn more about this quest, visit 365plus1.org. Welcome back to the Gap Podcast Series. We're in studio today with the extraordinary Dr. Kyra Brown, Assistant Professor of Public Health at the University of Texas in Arlington. We've narrowed, narrowed, this, to, narrowed this down to what we believe are the, the eight factors that are really driving black infant mortality issues around maternal morbidity, maternal health. We're going to take on eight in the series. And, and, as, and, and our research indicated, and I, I certainly want you to speak to this because, you know, we're just, you know, we're people that make movies for a living. I mean, we're not clinicians. We're not people in public health like you. So we're just looking at, you know, the surface level data and then just parsing that data, you know, to, to develop a, narr a narrative from it. But one of the things that, that we've seen is that it appears that if preterm births and low birth weight 
babies could be dealt with and those outcomes could be altered, that would have a direct and profound impact on black infant mortality if we could deal with the issue of preterm births. Mm-hmm. So if is that a is that a correct statement just from your your perspective that I just made? Yeah, um one of the things that we see is preterm birth, low birth weight. Um I know for Tarrant County in particular, so there's this it's called perinatal periods of risk. Um and it's it's a way of it's supposed to be kind of a community um informed kind of analytic process of trying to determine what are the major contributors to excess infant mortality. Um, And so one of the things that we see with black women is there's these different categories, and one is maternal slash prematurity, right? So the premature, um, preterm birth piece, um, but also maternal health factors that contribute to this over excess of... um, infant deaths. So, yes and. So is it is it correct then or is it accurate to is it accurate for is it accurate for us to say that if we could reduce the amount the number of preterm births that there would be there would be a positive difference in terms of of the number of black infants that actually make it to their first mm-hmm. birthday? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable line of thinking, yeah. Okay, and... Especially if it's, like, very preterm birth, like, you know, Before severe. 30, like, there's 30 weeks to cut off, or, mm-hmm. or what's, what actually would, would you say is the cutoff for, for what would be considered a preterm birth? Oh, yeah, before 37 Before weeks. 37 weeks. But then there's, like... Um, kind of gradients within that. So it may be preterm birth, and then it's moderate, and then there's very preterm birth, which is very, very, very early, but less than 37 weeks. Okay. I just want to give you the floor and just you know, give the opportunity to just say whatever you want to say about this topic. Yeah. Well, I think um, I don't have much to say other than within you know, the context of black maternal and infant health. Um, one, I think it's it's great that you all are doing this work. Um, I'm just an advocate for um, black-led um, work. I feel, I feel very strongly about being particularly a black researcher um, just because, you know, a lot of times I'm in spaces where Sometimes it feels like, you know, others may, I don't know, not to say that there's not a care for the issues, um, because many colleagues um, that I've worked with who have not been black certainly care about it. Um, but there's been other spaces where it's it's almost like, I think about like, um, for lack of a better word, but you know, how you have the same idea of um, poverty porn, right? Um, and seeing kind of, th- and, and seeing, you know, these desperate outcomes and, oh, whoa, gloom, you know, um, these 
look at these disparities, you know, and, and really making a career and a living off of, um, you know, these persistent racial disparities um, to where the work ends there, simply stating the disparity versus using that work to catalyze, um, you know, changes and action and giving that work back to the community um, so that they're aware of what's happening and can, you know, work can be informed from that. And so I just care very deeply about that. And I know that's one of the things that sometimes keeps me up at night is, you know, um, the spaces that particularly black researchers can find themselves in um, and the importance of finding community with other um, black folk who are doing the work and live the work. Because I, I go home to this, right? I don't get to not go home to this. Um, and I feel like it's a certain level of stake that you have and that adds meaning to the work that's being done. Um, and so I think with this being shared to anybody, you know, it's easy to feel like an imposter or to feel like you don't have the expertise to talk about, you know, something. Um, but I'd say, especially to those families who are most impacted, is that your lived experience makes you the expert. Um, it makes you the expert to speak about these things. It makes you the expert to sit at these tables, to create your own tables, whatever it takes. Um, and so I think that's just maybe one of the last things that I wanted to share is that, you know, just that empowerment to continue to do the work despite whatever else is going on in the periphery. So, Well, that's great. I, I am... Deeply, we are deeply indebted to you for your time this evening and and just the the breadth of knowledge and fresh insight that you've offered to our, our audiences um, is stunning, really. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. The Gap Podcast Series is produced by Limeville Entertainment in association with Sagasse Media Group. Also, be sure to visit us online at 365plusone.org. That's 365plusone.org. <laughs>